Welcome to chapel, chapel hour here at Central Africa Baptist College and Seminary, and welcome those of you who are joining us on FM 92.1. Welcome to chapel, and this afternoon, introduced to you, uh, Pastor Mark Dever is the senior pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church and the president of Nine Marks Ministry, and I know that will make uh, more of a connection to many of you because you've seen and you've benefited from a lot of the resource. And so um, Pastor Mark's been serving as the senior pastor there since 1994 and uh, has, as you know, a deep love for the local church and also for his his wife, Connie, uh, two full-grown children. We have the opportunity to have Pastor Mark come and preach for us in chapel. So would you please come? Thank you. Friends, it's good to be with you. Thank you for being here. Uh, the church back in Washington, D.C. is praying for our time. We prayed together when we were together on Sunday night. Uh, we heard Isaac and Bobby's report uh, from about a month ago, as Phil mentioned, and we're delighted to hear of some of the Lord's work here, and we're looking forward to tomorrow as well. Um, we've also appreciated seeing some of the work already this morning. Phil has driven us around to a couple of the local churches, and we've gotten to see some of the things the Lord is doing here, and it's very encouraging to see just some of God's work among them. <coughs> All right, with your Bibles, who particularly likes the book of First Peter? Okay, my guys, don't, no, not you. I mean, if the brothers and sisters here, I mean, you, you, you know, it's, it, I'm not saying you should have favorites of books in the Bible. They're all inspired, they're all true. But does anyone here have a particular love for First Peter? I'm just curious. Maybe nobody does. One person just stand, okay, a couple, three people do. Stand up, you three. Stand, stand up just for a moment, come on. Anybody else? First Peter, you really like First Peter. All right, another one right back there. All right. Can you just say briefly, like speak loudly, what it is you particularly like about First Peter? Uh, what I like about First Peter is that as we are living in this life, God has given us everything we need for life and God. Amen. He's given us everything we need for life and God in us. Yep. Oh, blessed be the Lord and God of our Father who has given us good and who has made us Right at the beginning there in chapter 1, yeah. The, yes, praise God, yep. Uh, uh, the fact of uh, joy because of the hope that you have in Christ. Even though we go through trials, yeah. uh, we are security in Christ. That's the kind of special thing about First Peter, isn't it? He talks about the trials and that you have joy. It's kind of like Hebrews chapter 12. Yeah. Yes, sir, brother. So again, it's that combination of suffering and yet we have joy. Yep. Please be seated. Thank you so much. I think it's good that we know our books of the Bible. It's good that you know, you know, if, if, you've, if you've read a book by Mark Dever, that, that's great. Or, or, you know, Phil Hunt or Conrad Mbewe or, or whoever. It's good to know books by J.I. Packer or Thomas Watson from the Puritans. But it's really good to know your books of the Bible and to know what each book is about. So I really appreciated the way you all pointed out there is this specific theme of suffering and yet with joy in first peter that's what i want us to look at in our time together if you'd open up your bibles to first peter chapter four peter really summarizes this in that last half of chapter four. First peter chapter four beginning verse 12 dear friends do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice 
that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, Those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. That last verse of chapter 4, I think, is a good ethical summary of 1 Peter. Commit yourselves to your faithful creator and continue to do good. It's so easy to remember. Commit yourself to your faithful creator and continue to do good. If we Christians are so suffering according to the will of God, that is, for bearing the name of Christ, I want us just to notice two things in this time together before lunch. And how blessed you are to be downwind of a bakery. It just keeps you in mind of the good provision the Lord has. I want us to know something about now and then something about the time to come. All right? First about now. Uh, How are we to suffer? Peter gets very specific here about how we're to suffer. He says we should not suffer with surprise and shame. You see that in verses 12 and 16. First, uh, not with surprise there. Look at verse 12 again. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. So you are no more surprised to find tests in school Or audits in a business. A doctor is not surprised to find sickness in the hospital. The soldier is not surprised to find combat on the battlefield. In the same way, brothers and sisters, we should not be surprised to find suffering if we are following Christ in a fallen world. It's part of the normal remit, part of the normal description. Peter's saying here, look, even if your old friends think it is surprising and strange and weird that you don't plunge with them into the same flood of destructive immorality, like he's talked about earlier in chapter 4, that you used to engage in, so you seem to be being surprised by their reaction. He's saying, why are you surprised by that? It's almost like you're as surprised as they are, but you shouldn't be surprised. That your non-Christian friends react that way. A Christian is not a stranger to suffering. And therefore, when we meet with suffering along the way, we shouldn't be surprised by it. We shouldn't be confused by it. I don't know about you and how good you are with directions. I know that you know, when I'm driving around, uh, I'm, I'm older than GPS systems, so I'm, I'm used to knowing how to get places myself. I don't like relying on a telephone or a cell phone to tell me how to get somewhere. I want to understand what, what is north and what is south, what is east and what is west. 
I want to understand where things are. And I remember once driving out and looking uh, outside of the city I live in, in a country area for a farmer's market that I'd gotten some particularly good apple juice at, that I wanted to go get it again for my family. And I drove out and I thought I knew exactly where it was, but I got lost. I couldn't find it. And so I went down this road and down that road. I probably spent an hour driving around looking for this farmer's market until finally I saw a landmark I realized and then I knew I was back on the way and I found this farmer's market and I was able to get the apple juice and bring it home. I'm just using that as a simple illustration. Landmarks, things that we're familiar with, show us that we're on the right way. If you think that suffering as a Christian is wrong, then you're going to be confused. You've got to know that as a follower of Jesus Christ, suffering as a Christian is a landmark that you're actually on the right route. You're going the right way. That, that is how we go when we follow Christ. It was the things that I wasn't expecting that let me know that I was on the wrong road. Well, well, these Christians Peter was writing to were not expecting suffering, apparently. And yet Peter exhorts them here that they should have been. Meeting suffering on the road shouldn't surprise them and cause them to doubt that they're going the right way. Instead, if they are suffering for doing good, for bearing the name of Christ, it should actually encourage them that they're on the right way. Indeed, it should be more worrying to us if we think we've found a way of following Christ without suffering. What does that mean? What would it mean for us to truly follow Jesus with no suffering because of it? Friend, I would just challenge you, even if you're here at Bible college, if that's your experience, it should give you pause to check your direction and see which way you're going. Because it seems... You may have found a better way than Jesus. And that doesn't seem right. I love C.S. Lewis's book, Screwtape Letters. And in one of those letters, Screwtape wrote to Wormwood, The safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. But the way of Christ is not like that. Peter says clearly here that the way of Christ includes suffering because it's going against the grain of this fallen world. Hardship and suffering, because we're Christians, should not be surprising to us if we're Christians. All right, that's verse 12. Peter's very clear. That is not how we should experience suffering as Christians. Not with surprise. But he goes on to say, not only should such suffering for Christ not be met with surprise, but it should not be met with shame. Look at verse 16. Look down at verse 16. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. Brothers and sisters, such suffering is no shame to us. It's no disgrace. Even if others begin to regard us as odd or wrong unpleasantly over-righteous, we shouldn't be convinced by them. And to be ashamed is to be convinced by them. We shouldn't be ashamed for doing what Jesus calls us to do. If we're ashamed that we're adopting their reading of matters of the truth, when it's the furthest thing from it, suffering as a Christian will work to your everlasting glory. Not your scorn and reproach, 
It's this wrong world, which would shame these Christians back in Peter's day that he was writing to, and that would shame us for following Christ today. But those who present themselves now as the final purveyors of moral fashion will not finally prevail. Theirs will not be the last word. We shouldn't take their reading of the situation as final. They don't have that kind of authority. Now, if you're here, and even as a student in in a Bible college, if you're one of those people who just can't stand to disappoint other people, then you're going to have a particularly hard time being a Christian. Because this temptation to avoid what others consider shameful may well feel like an obstacle to you that's too great to get past. Non-Christians will consider stands you take or opinions you hold or teachings that you have absolutely wrong, even shameful. This is increasingly the case back in North America. I wonder if it's that way here. One of the things in, in Nine Marks that we're always emphasizing in that ministry to local churches is our willingness, even our joy in being distinctive from the culture around us. I feel like God's called us to kind of help tar the ark before the flood comes. Brothers and sisters, that's what we need to be as Christians in this world. In America, Christians who not only believe that the scripture clearly teaches that homosexuality is wrong, but say and even teach that publicly are often now labeled as prejudiced, as hate mongers, sowing the seeds of violence. In Zambia, you'll have challenges to face. There'll be people in your own community, maybe in your own family, who may have liked you personally, but you now, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you're saying things that bother them. I wonder what you feel the climate is for following Christ. Is the climate in Zambia changing? I know you're officially a Christian country, but you well know that doesn't mean everybody in Zambia is a Christian. How is it for you in following Christ here? Are we to be ashamed for following Christ, for believing the Bible as Christians have for centuries? Well, if so, we need to realize that's not a new situation. It's not because we're in the very difficult 21st century. Brothers and sisters, that was the situation in the first century. That's why Peter wrote this letter. Because Christians were finding that they were being opposed. As John says in 1 John, we should not be surprised if the world hates us. Now, if you're violent towards someone based on hatred and you suffer for it, well, that would be suffering for doing evil. And Peter says here, no Christian should ever do that. But if you are simply teaching scripture, still don't be surprised. Don't be ashamed for doing it faithfully, even if you are rejected. What's a Christian to do? He says here so clearly, if you suffer as a Christian, verse 16, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. Don't be surprised at suffering for Christ. And don't be ashamed of suffering for Christ. Well, if that's how we're not to meet suffering for Christ, how are we to meet it? Well, simply with rejoicing and praising. Look at verse 13. 
Peter says, with rejoicing, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. This call to rejoice in participating in the sufferings of Christ isn't suicidal. It's not because you just love suffering. No, we can have joy in this suffering in the same way that parents can rejoice at a baby's cry at night if it's part of the teeth coming in. You understand it's part of something that's good. It's painful, but it shows something larger is happening that's good. Our sufferings are the birth pangs of the new age, of this new time that's to come. So if those things we suffer are actually a part of the sufferings of Christ, then we should rejoice in this evidence that we are united to Christ by faith. So we really should rejoice in suffering for following Christ. And then too, it's no surprise to find that such suffering should also be met with praising God, as he does here in verse 16. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. That kind of suffering gives us further evidence that God has called us to bear the name of Christ and to live for him. So rather than suffering causing us to doubt God or even curse him for the trouble, we Christians praise God for the privilege of knowing that we are, as Christ said, blessed for being persecuted, for following him. And like Christ accepted his suffering, so we who follow Christ will accept our suffering. Ours will be a will conformed to his will, even as his will was conformed to his heavenly father's will. And so we meet suffering for Christ not with surprise or shame, but with rejoicing and with praise to God, seeing the larger picture of what's really going on. Suffering for Christ shows that you are on Christ's side in the great change that's taking place. And that brings us to the other thing I want us to notice in that passage Let's turn from the now to the then. Peter tells these Christians that they should be living now with then in view. So the suffering is now, but the only way we make it through the now is to have that then, that time that's coming, in view. We are called to live with the end in view. The end, first of all, for those who don't know Christ, we need to know the truth about this. Look at verses 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? You know, I think a lot of Christians, when they read this, immediately say, wait a minute, you you mean we're going to be judged? And it's true that the first half of verse 17, the first half of verse 18, talk about that. Peter writes, it's time for judgment to begin with the house of God, the family of God, his household. The house of God means, of course, his church. It's the spiritual house he mentions over in chapter 2. In verse 5, he calls it a spiritual house that Christians were being built into, the dwelling place of God. And it just makes sense that we would be a priority for God's concern for his holiness and righteousness 
to be reflected. And the trials that these Christians were currently enduring were to be seen as winnowing. A sort of fiery judgment of God through which they would be delivered. Peter is clear about that. He's quoting from the book of Proverbs. It's hard for the righteous to be saved. It's hard, but the point is the righteous will be saved. Those who are trusting ultimately in Christ's righteousness, as we just sang in the Reformation hymn. Saved only by dealing adequately with God's holiness and justice in a way which we know of through Jesus Christ, through his righteousness. But that's not the point of what Peter is saying here in verses 17 and 18. He's assuming these Christians would understand that. No, what he's saying is that since it is hard for the righteous to be saved... So hard, in fact, that Christ had to die for us in order for us to be counted righteous. How then will those who reject this sacrifice of Christ be saved? If the death of Christ has been required for the salvation of sinners, then what will become of the sinners who reject this sacrifice? As the writer of the Hebrews says, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? So these Christians may have been the ones who felt under threat, but that's not really the case, Peter says. The pursuers will become the pursued. Those who have judged you will themselves be judged. As those who rejected Noah's message of righteousness fell literally under the flood of God's judgment, even so those unbelievers here who are disobedient to the gospel, living in a flood of dissipation, would themselves be drowned in God's judgment. Peter is arguing here from the lesser to the greater. And he's saying to these Christians, look, you already have an idea of how great your current trials are, right? As Christians. But he's saying that is nothing compared to what will befall those who continue to disobey God and reject his gospel. This thing will be so great that Peter expresses it with questions here, which ring in the ears of those people who would have heard this letter first read. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? The non-Christians who were persecuting these believers should be living with this end in view. They should realize what's coming. And this should persuade them to change their way. Now, I know I'm speaking to people related to a Bible college, but still, when I've got a hundred people sitting in front of me, I don't know that every one of you is trusting in Christ for your salvation. You may have come along with, with a friend who is a student here or works here who says, we've got a special speaker today. You should just come during your lunchtime. Come. Friend, if that's you and you're not a Christian, you should repent of your sins and trust in Christ. You yourself, because God is good, will be judged by this good God. Because you are not perfectly good. None of us are. Our only hope is in the one who is perfectly good, Jesus Christ. And the sacrifice that he has given of himself upon the cross for all of us who would turn from our sins and trust in him. That could be you today. If you want to know more about that, you could not be in a better room in Kitway. You are surrounded by people in a Bible college. They would love to talk to you about how you could repent of your sins and trust in Christ even this very day. The purpose of these words here 
was not, though, so much to dissuade the ungodly from their ungodliness, because Peter is writing this letter to Christians. But look at verse 17. That, that us, in verse 17, uh, shows that Peter's assuming that his audience are Christians. This is therefore written as a consolation to Christians. To let them know that they're not the only guys who, who are experiencing suffering or who will, experiencing su- who will experience suffering. These guys who are persecuting them are not to be feared. They're not to be envied for their power. They are to be pitied. They are to be prayed for. They are to be preached to. Those who do not obey the gospel of God, the ungodly, the sinner, these are the ones who are really in mortal danger, not the Christians. So these two verses are like a little synopsis of the book of Revelation. If you want to study the book of Revelation, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 17 and 18 are a really good summary of what the book of Revelation is all about. Anyway, that's for those who do not accept Christ. But for those who accept the good news of salvation in Christ, verse 19, Peter's instructions are clear and plain and confident and positive. First, Christians should commit themselves to their faithful creator. Verse 19, so then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator. So if you're suffering for following Christ, don't get rattled and take things into your own hands. Try to grab the steering wheel back from God so that you can find a road that's a little easier. The way to live when suffering according to God's will is to entrust yourself to that very one, that very sovereign who created us in the first place. Commit yourself to him. He is trustworthy. He is powerful. He is the right one to invest your life in. And then when you've done that, when you've you've looked forward and said, I'll go his way. I'm going to trust him. I will rely on him entirely for direction. Then you should continue to do good. Verse 19. So then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. It's like the psalmist said in Psalm 37, trust in the Lord and do good. We're not just to sit back and say that at one point we trusted the Lord or we committed ourselves to him. No, brothers and sisters, we have to continue on the way, continue to do good, even to those around us who oppose us. We do good to them. That is certainly, I know, easier to preach than it is to live. That's one of the challenges of being a preacher of God's Word. You find it easier to stand and say things than it is to actually live them out. God often draws the strings of our lives tight when He would play beautiful music on it. So we Christians are called to be like Christ, who committed His way to God and therefore continued in it, even when it led him to the cross. We Christians are to live with the end in view. The end of those who wrongly persecute us, so we're not confused by them, we don't fear them, and our own end, if we commit ourselves to our faithful Creator and continue to do good. I love that little verse, that last verse in chapter 4, verse 19. It is a wonderful summary of Peter's message. 
I was talking one time with a friend of mine uh, who I knew well when I, I lived in England for six and a half years. And I got to know the guy who supervised J.I. Packer's dissertation as a doctoral student. So Packer at the time was in his 70s. This guy was in his 90s. And uh, strange kindness of God, I got to know him well. And I was talking with him about a difficult decision I had in front of me. And I'll never forget that this older friend with his quivering voice and his ever-precise Oxbridge kind of pronunciation of English repeated the simple words that his father had taught him seven decades before when he was sending him off to boarding school and he knew he was going to be facing a lot of non-Christian temptations. Simple words were these, do, do thy duty, that is best. Leave unto thy Lord the rest. Do thy duty, that is best. Leave unto thy Lord the rest. Well, that's, I think, what Peter is telling these Christians here. You realize that boredom, when you're hearing a sermon, is the listener's problem, right? It's not the problem of the speaker. No, if, if you're enthralled by this message, that's great. I hope it's helpful for you. If you're not interested in this message, you want to ask yourself why that is. Why does this message not grip your heart? So Christ is our example, but Christ as an example is not enough. We Christians follow Christ because we have become united with him. Our unity flows out not fundamentally of our uniting with each other, but of our uniting with Christ. It's because we're united with Christ that then we know the unity that we do with each other even despite living on different continents. We're literally indwelt with the same spirit. There are members of my family who don't know Christ. I can have not even met you yet and be closer to you than I am to non-Christian members of my own family because we're united with Christ. Remember Peter's language in verse 13 about our participating in the sufferings of Christ. But rejoice, look at verse 13 again. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. Brothers and sisters, there's some, something more than simply our choices, our actions going on here. It's a bit of what we read about in the book of Galatians, of our being united with Christ. Christ traces out his life in us, making it visible for others, building up his church and glorifying himself in his creation. And he especially does that through his people and with us particularly through our sufferings. It's not that he doesn't glorify himself through blessing us. He does that. But there is a peculiar glory that he does this through our suffering for him. But those sufferings are a fading precursor to the glories which are to be revealed. That's the way of Christ, isn't it? His way was not one simply of total self-denial to the way of extinction. Jesus was no Buddhist. You know, this is what Buddhism teaches. Buddhism teaches, kind of like Christianity, that we should deny ourselves. But Buddhism teaches that because it says we're basically an illusion. We need to get rid of that illusion. We need to realize we don't even really exist. 
Well, Christianity doesn't say that at all. Christianity says each one of us has been made in the image of God, that we will exist eternally under His wrath or in fellowship with Him in His blessedness. So Jesus Christ Himself, His was not the way of simple, total self-denial to the point of final extinction. No. No, the, the sufferings of Christ were followed by the glory to be revealed. That's how the Christian story is completed. The glory to be revealed. That's the pattern of Christ. And so that's the pattern for us. Look back in chapter 1, verse 11. Peter uses this theme throughout, as several of you mentioned, when you said why this is such a a beloved book by you. Look at verse 10, chapter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted what? The sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So this pair, suffering then glory, you'll find it in Isaiah, you'll find it in the Gospels, You'll find it in the book of Acts. This pair, suffering and glory, is apparently the way that Jesus would teach his disciples the Old Testament prophecies of his coming. This rhythm in Jesus' life of suffering, then glory, was predicted in the Old Testament. It was lived out in Jesus' own life. It's a constant theme here in Peter's letter as he reflects on Christ's suffering and resurrection. And therefore, it is the pattern of the life of those who follow Christ. There is nothing surprising in it. Like I say, read through Luke's gospel, looking for this theme of suffering and glory. Luke reminds us that after the resurrection of Jesus, when he appeared to the disciples at Emmaus, and he listened to the disciples' incomprehension, how they did not understand, then Jesus said, it's like he breaks out, he only wants to take so much of their misunderstanding. And he says in, in Luke 24, 25, How foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? That's the very point the resurrected Christ speaks to his still stumbling disciples on. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. Those same two ideas that Peter uses, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. That's what Jesus said to the disciples here in verse 26 of Luke 24. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Later, Jesus said to all his disciples in Luke 24 and verse 44, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Now, of course, it's just so interesting. Peter had heard Jesus teach. He heard Jesus teach the Old Testament. Not long afterwards, Peter preached the first Christian sermon at Pentecost. And how did Peter begin that sermon? He quoted an Old Testament prophecy about what was to come. Peter begins that sermon in Acts chapter 2 by quoting the prophet Joel. And then when Peter talks to the crowd in Acts chapter 3, he refers to Christ's resurrection, saying this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that Christ would suffer. Let's just turn there. Acts chapter 3. 
We're just about at the end of this message, but I want you to see this this theme so clearly. Acts chapter 3, verse 18. Acts 3, beginning at verse 18. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord, and that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, and as many as have spoken, have foretold these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your forefathers. Friends, this is the same pattern that we see that Peter's writing about in his letter here. Just like in his sermon, so in his letter, he talks about suffering and then vindication. He'll keep talking about this in 1 Peter, in in the next chapter, in chapter 5, in uh, verse 1. And again in verses 9 and 10. This pattern of suffering, then glory. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. It's just all through his letter. Suffering and glory. So we get to participate in the sufferings of Christ. As Luther said, the sufferings of Christ will be fulfilled daily in Christians until the end of the world. There is suffering, but after that comes the glory. Christ has become more than a model for his people, more than even a substitute for us, though he is both of those things. He has united himself with us. He fills us with his own spirit, conforming us increasingly to his own image. Finally, bringing us home to himself. Praise God. After the suffering comes the glory. And one day, as Peter says here, the glory will be revealed. So it's in that light, the light of that glorious hope, the light it casts back into our present darkness, that we live today, even in sufferings for Christ, if we're Christians. Let's pray together. Friends, take just a moment of quietness and reflect on what the Lord is doing in your own life, what sufferings you may be trying or needing to undergo right now. And then I'll lead us in prayer. Spurgeon said, If today He deigns to bless us with a sense of pardoned sin, He tomorrow may distress us, make us feel the plague within, all to make us sick of self and fond of Him. Let's pray. Lord God, we do pray that you would make us understand what you're doing in our lives. Help us to trust you. Help us to understand what you've done in the Lord Jesus and what you're doing in and through our own lives. Help us to live looking forward to that day of coming glory. And so, Lord, commit ourselves to you and continue to do good.
We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.